Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. UK Tech Weekly Podcast. You are about to witness the strength of street knowledge. And that street happens to be the one we are in now in London. It's the end of the pod as we know it, and I feel fine about that. UK Tech Weekly is back on time like the teacher's pet for the 59th week in a row, wondering why there's been no summer holiday where all the other kids are, and hoping that someone listens to its incessant audio assault on the world of tech. It's been a busy week, and to join me, Henry Burrow, in conversation today is a man who might have visited cruelly. It's Tom McCauley, online editor at Tech World. Hello. Uh, a man whose origins in this world are Western, it's Dominic Preston, staff writer at Tech Advisor. Oh, hi. <laughs> and it's someone who says Nike is Tory, it's Tamlin McGee. Hello. Online editor at Tech World. Uh, a three-way split today sees a sandwich stuff about games with some meaty tech slices of finest audio wholemeal, so butter up and dive in. Sooner or later, we should talk about data, because no fear is greater than being labelled a traitor or something. Uh, Tom McCauley, you've been scribing these past few days a story on Facebook's data mine, and I hear you know a fair whack about Google too. Why is big data scary? Um, why is it scary? It's because they know everything about you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that, that old chestnut. It's yeah. comforting. So well, if you just take us through, well, yeah, I've read your, your piece, which isn't actually online yet, some, some embargoed shit right there. Um, what, what have you been writing about? Um, well, sort of been trawling through various sources, looking at what exactly Facebook and Google collect about their users. Um, it's from a wide range of sources, and they both do, well, very different jobs of explaining exactly what they collect. I think Google are slightly more open about what there is and how mm-hmm. you can get rid of it. Facebook, a bit more secretive, but um, they both have a hell of a lot. Um, obviously, the on-site behavior forms a big part of it. Facebook also collects a lot from third-party sources. They pay data brokers for extra information they've compiled from government records and surveys and commercial sources. Um, They've got other companies they've acquired that they use as well, Instagram and WhatsApp. And as a result, they can guess pretty well everything (laughs) about you. So there's a few things about this which unnerve. Mm. Um, There's stuff like, is it the fact that individuals are already signed up to these services and they don't realise? But is it also the scary point that you make uh, when they do realise that all their data is sitting on servers, they can't actually get it back? Yeah, I mean, well, Facebook do give you the opportunity to download a zip file with your entire browsing history. 
but you can't delete it. I mean, once it's obviously, there, they obviously have still have a copy of that, right? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that you can't get rid of. Um, I mean, so you brought up the point about people actually signing up to ag- agreeing, basically, to hand over all this data. Yeah. Uh, someone from the public sector mentioned this to me the other, the other day, and people are much more reluctant to trust public sector bodies with their data than they are commercial ones, which I find quite interesting. I mean, in the case of Facebook. I think one story that was particularly interesting recently reported on was its influence on the US elections. Um, perhaps slightly exaggerating, but a company called Cambridge Analytica was supposed to have helped the Donald Trump campaign create extremely targeted advertising based on Facebook likes. Um, oh, right, yeah. So what, So the proliferation of so-called fake news, or you mean just sort of um, right-wing uh stuff yeah well, <laughs> being, I mean, being pushed towards the correct audiences based on their behavior sure like, sure yeah, yeah. yeah i mean it could work on all sides of the political spectrum but um it would basically identify the issues that appeal to you most or you're most concerned about and then create advertisements uh, right. specifically geared towards those concerns so, so how is it legal <laughs> <laughs> or is it a loophole or is this something that media such as ourselves will perhaps tweak into a negative sense or is it as bad as it sounds yeah i mean you're making an agreement really um you're handing over your data in exchange for a free service i mean facebook's a social network but really it's an advertising company in a sense that's how it makes its money um so i don't think there's anything illegal per se whether it's immoral or not is another question but they do give users access to the content that they're actually using and they have to sign up to using it so I'm, I'm a bit murky on this. So the, is the, the main way they make their money through selling information about users onto third parties, or is it pushing adverts to the user? Because the adverts I always get on Facebook, which I'm on right now, <laughs> are bad. Like John Lewis, I would never go there in my life. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's mostly the former, actually. But I mean, yeah, I think that's... I think people slightly exaggerate the accuracy of their algorithms. I mean, there was one person I read an example of today who said... Um, this was a Cambridge Analytica company that was supposed to be so influential in the US election. Yeah. And it told her that she had a 65% probability of being male and was likely to be a homosexual. <laughs> Neither of which were true. But yeah, I mean, some people say that it's amazing how accurate adverts come up on their profile, but others, clearly in your case, not so much. Um, something in your piece that you had a quote from Julian Assange, Assange, however you say it. And he was basically saying, if you go to a party and take a picture of someone and put it on Facebook, then you're a rat. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, how how close to the truth is that? <laughs> I get the feeling he doesn't go to many parties. Yeah. <laughs> and the Ecuadorian yeah. embassy doesn't have many, does it? But, <laughs> well, Pablo um, Ransom pops over oh, occasionally. Yeah. Shit, it's like Baywatch over there now, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, what does he mean by that, apart from trying to get a quote? Well, uh, he actually says that Facebook have created an interface specifically for US intelligence right. that gives them access to all sorts of user data on demand, whatever they want. So, yeah, it's literally, according to Assange's sources... That data is instantly accessible to security services, to intelligence services. That's nuts. Mm. And the other thing that freaked me out, um, I, I don't want to give it all away because this isn't online yet, but if you can talk slightly a little bit about how it, um, as you type, and even if you then delete something without posting it, they can still collect that metadata. Yeah, that was a really interesting one. That was something I read. Um, a data scientist called Vicky Boykus released a story revealed recently that... Um, Facebook have some kind of technology that can track what you're typing before you actually enter it. So they use it to do something to analyze what they call self-censorship, basically (laughs) to find out your unpublished thoughts. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, and they used that. They said they they've used that in the past to study human behavior, which is quite unnerving. But um, yeah, so not even having to think before you speak, think before you type as well. So so they and and in the same way, what are they suggesting that they could then sell that information to advertisers? If people are about to write. I really want a new iPhone, and then they delete it. They death, suggest death that America. they <laughs> America, yeah. yeah, all these things. Um, but I mean, aside from that, how, how if it is different, is Google's collection of data different? Right. Well, they have different sources. Um, the location tracking is particularly interesting on in Google because you can actually go to your Google Maps timeline and it will show you exactly where you've travelled, which is quite interesting and so sort of, yeah, quite a strange experience. But um, from what I understand, they also uh, Google through their acquisitions, they also have access to things like um, any Android phone. They get the data from that. Your YouTube viewing, um, but they display this all pretty openly on yeah. the My Activity timeline that any user can access. Whereas with Facebook, it seems a little bit more secretive. So, so do, do, do I mean the, of everyone here in the room? Do we feel more comfortable with Google just because it's sort of hiding in plain sight? It's saying, "Here you go." Like you know, um, if you use Android, I think we all do. Um, sometimes if you like go to a pub or whatever, you pull down your notification thing and it's like, are you in the swan and goose or whatever? And then you're like, <laughs> it's not a real pub. Um, and then you can like click to add photos or say you were there. Yeah. And it's all this way of getting like more stuff for reviews, but also like, as you say, increasingly uh, open data about where you've been. Sure. Um, I think what creeps me out about Facebook, I've mentioned this before, uh, is how they've been quite open about conducting experiments on their users. Yeah. Uh, for yeah. example... I remember once they were altering, deliberately altering what people saw in their timelines to see if they could make people feel sad or happy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> turned out that they could. Yeah. And they were doing this all in secret as well, which is mm. kind of disturbing, really, thinking they've got that much Yeah, they do that. Power. I mean, this week as well, we sort of realised that one of our colleagues has a little rocket next to the, the, the newsfeed icon. And that was a lot more uh, open um, for Facebook anyway. It was like a, a place that they took you where it sort of pushed you sort of relevant content. I'm doing the bunnier thing. Um, <laughs> Uh, that you might want but it was only pushed out to a certain amount of users but yeah the, the ones where they kind of uncover basically just, they're just trying to depress people is <laughs> kind of scary and so, so something else i picked up from your article tom about google which is online um that google i didn't actually know this google only paid 50 million dollars for android in yeah, 2005 right? yeah. they must be having a f- laugh now <laughs> pretty, pretty good deal, yeah. 50 million and they've they've got like the majority of smartphone metadata like oh that's absolutely insane yeah, yeah. Um, i think even the youtube acquisitions you just a bit of a bargain now that was um 1.65 billion about 10 years ago but still yeah it's youtube <laughs> yeah yeah that's, right that's that. advertising revenue there as well and I, I presume does that extend to all of their services it's not just android it's it's every thing <laughs> yeah yeah as far as i'm aware yeah um, what's your opinion, Tom, on stuff like Google Home and Amazon Echo? Because we've uh, got these sort of smart home devices, and I've, I've not got one myself, but lots of colleagues have been using them. And you sort of say, I don't know, whatever it is, like Alexa, order me a milkshake or something, and it'll bring delivery to your door. But it, the fact that you have to you have to opt in, and this is something they've had to make clear to consumers, that you have to be like, yes, my data will be stored on your service forever, because otherwise, how can it learn you? Yeah. Um, I find that weird. It's like because people know that their data is being kept and a profile is being made of them, but it's because they decide that they want to be able to, you know, order a taxi without moving. Um, why, why is it that people get more annoyed about the fact that Facebook's doing it, but that's not okay? Yeah, good question. Um, I think possibly because they don't really know yet. Yeah, emerging technology. Just the simple people, thing they don't know. Yeah, what yeah. They've it, signed up to. It depends on the service you're getting in return, I guess, as well. I think that's why people are more reluctant to trust the, pub, the, um, the public sector with their data because yeah. 
they're happy to actually use Facebook every day, but they probably don't see the sort of holistic importance of public data being used to improve services, possibly. Mm. TFL's very good with making use of data. Yeah, 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 definitely, yeah. What do they do? Well, just the fact that you can <laughs> check when your bus is going to be pretty much anywhere in London. Mm. Oh, it's all, quite, yeah. it's all quite linked up, but also yeah. they... They did do a study recently whereby anyone who can, had their Wi-Fi switched on and travelled in the tube, uh, that data was recorded by TfL and they mapped out all the user behaviour of commuters on the tube. And was that to, to manage congestion? Or, yeah. uh, just to see how people were like moving in stations and stuff yeah. at different times. So that they tracked sort of which routes were popular to get, say, from any given station to another, where there were sort of three or four different ways you might sensibly travel between those two stations. Uh, okay. They tracked which ways were more popular. Uh, and whether that changed at different times and that kind of thing. So, I mean, that sounds useful, and it's the way yeah, it's been presented to us that we trust it. So do we think that it's the responsibility of companies like Facebook to better um, talk to the user about what, their data, or is it too late now? Is it Because cause obviously metadata is useful and mm-hmm. isn't always you know, Orwellian, but how? whose responsibility is it to uh, make sure people don't feel that? Yeah, I mean, it's a bit of a Faustian pact, really, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> yeah. sort of accept it in return for what they give give you but um i think facebook are quite clearly happier to keep it as hidden as possible because they'd probably terrify a lot of their users if it was more widely known it's kind of a crappy faustian pact just <laughs> reminders that people are having babies and i'm not and so on yeah. <laughs> or making you ladies might be making you vote trump though so you never know well luckily we couldn't have uh, even if we wanted to um so just finally tom what can individuals listening do to protect their data apart from basically not use Facebook? Yeah, that's pretty much it, really. Um, right. There yeah. you go, guys. Or just, <laughs> yes. yeah, yeah. I mean, any any kind of on-site behaviour is going to influence the targeted advertising you receive. That you can change. You can change what kind of ads you receive. You can't stop receiving ads, but you can change them being targeted to your specific behaviour. There's a setting in Facebook and also in Google that lets you change that. And also lets you reveal the basic public profile they've drawn up of you in terms of, you know, your age, interests, political leanings, things like that. So you can review it, you can download it, you can't stop it, really. Even when you leave. If you leave Facebook, it's still there. (laughs) It's still there. Just don't sign up. Aren't they also also tracking you through the like buttons embedded on websites as well? So they get a lot of data Mm. from that too. That's right, yeah. So even if you're not using Facebook, they're still collecting certain amounts of data about browsing apps. Yeah, yeah. Mm. They've got a technology called Facebook Pixel and any website that embeds that, they can see exactly which websites you're visiting, even if they've got nothing to do with Facebook. Just don't use the internet. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, thanks, Tom. When do you know when your article is going up? I think it's June because um, my editor is away for a while, so it's going okay, to cool. a fair few things for them. There you go. This is the teaser for the uh, the Facebook uh, data article. Tom will be putting on Tech World, so check it out in June. Uh, as is tradition, going to go around the room. I'll start with you, Tom. Um, social network or social threat work? Social threat work. Yeah, Tamlin. Social threat work. <laughs> Sorry, uh, Dom. <laughs> social network. Oh, okay. He likes it. He will not stop the data uh, train rumbling on. Okay, cool. So it's Dom up next, actually, to talk about some secret projects. To quote the Wikipedia entry for Scorpio, the uh, star sign, astrologers believe Scorpios are ruled by their desires, but their strength is resourcefulness, and that their resourcefulness allows them to control their desires until they have a plan to achieve them. Well, Microsoft has a plan to achieve something, and it's big, secret, and I quote, has six teraflops of power. It's the most frustratingly curtained games console of recent times, Project Scorpio, Microsoft's edgily crap name for its hush-hush new PS4 destroyer. Don Preston, what is it? 
<laughs> right. So this is uh, officially codenamed Project Scorpio, and we're all desperately hoping that's going to change between now and the console's launch, <laughs> because it does just sound like it was focus grouped by prepubescent boys. Um, <laughs> but this is a sort of new version of the existing uh, Xbox One. Uh, ah. It's not a full successor. It's sort of just a. It's going to play the same games, but play them a bit better uh, with better graphics. It's the equivalent to the PlayStation Four Pro, okay. uh, which is same sort of thing. That's a PlayStation Four, but it can output sort of high resolutions. Well, so, so it's hardware that can ways. that can actually improve the performance of existing software. Exactly. Yeah. So that's one of the benefits of it. So there's sort of two twin benefits to it. One is they can put out new games that are able to achieve. Uh, better graphics, yeah. but it also means your existing game library will, in theory, now run better. It can output at 4K rather than just HD, uh, potentially get higher frame rates, better load times, things like that. Without putting you on the spot, how is that possible? <laughs> <laughs> so it's the the way they're spinning it for Scorpio is a sort of twin thing again. So partly it's just that they set it up so that uh, it's obviously got much more powerful hardware specs than the existing Xbox One, yeah. and it is just the case that it will unlock all that potential for any game. So any game can just use the faster cores and the, the better RAM, the slightly uh, faster memory transfer speed on the hard drive, stuff like that. Okay. Um, developers will also be able to release patches to sort of optimize older games to really take full advantage of it. But any game should sort of out of the box run at least a little bit better. So how do we know? We record, uh, it's no big secret, on a Thursday. This goes out on a Friday. Yep. So we've we've waited to get some uh, <laughs> secret information, which is now available. But So they haven't actually announced the um, console, and it will be a, a home console, right? Not a PC. Yep. So this will be a home console. The expectation is it's coming out, what all Microsoft said is by holiday 2017. So it'll be sometime this year. We're not sure exactly when. We're getting a full reveal at E3 in June, so that will probably have things like the final name, if it's changing, the price, we'll get to see actually what the it box, looks like. what it looks like, yeah. and probably they'll announce some of the games that are going to come out and take full advantage of it. So why is it that uh, Microsoft and Sony think that they were PS3 and, sorry, PS4, sorry, yeah. and the Xbox One came out in 2013? Mm-hmm. So how is it that they've got away with only really kind of spec bumping them for four years? Well, it's something that, it didn't used to be a problem at all. We normally accepted that our consoles, you'd buy a console, it would be basically the same, and you'd have it for five or six years, Yeah. and then you'd buy the next one. They might release a slimline version, a slightly smaller one, but you wouldn't actually expect that to be any more powerful. Um, so really it's more just this is the first generation, both manufacturers have clearly felt a pressure uh, to keep up with things like the evolving PC market, which mm-hmm. you know it was sort of already at the point where a high-end PC can, you know, blow either of the main consoles out of the water. So it's good just a feeling that to match people's tech expectations, things like 4K TVs being relatively widespread now, yeah. and neither the base PS4 or Xbox One could take advantage of that at all. But more and more people have those TVs and their consoles weren't keeping up. So is it a bit, is it a bit like the, the telescopic uh, growth of smartphones now that we look at, I know we look at them a lot, but uh, they kind of got boring yeah. <laughs> after a few years because nothing was new anymore, nothing could be improved. So this is them panicking slightly? Uh, a little bit. And I think there's also that same, uh, in terms of the smartphone influence, there's more of an idea now that we upgrade our tech every year, every two years. Phones give, have given us that sense. Uh, and so the idea of keeping the same console for six years seems a bit uh, old-fashioned in a way. Yeah. Um, T- Tamlin, do you, do you want a more powerful PS4? No, <laughs> I feel like with this current generation of consoles, like the original ones, um, it's much more about 
they, they pretty much had the scope for like large open world games from the get go, and yeah. they were very very technically impressive. And I don't mm-hmm. think that you necessarily want that jump as much as you might have done in the sort of like the PS2 or PS3 era when they were yeah. more limited by the console's capabilities. Yeah. Um. So no. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Do, do, you, do you game, Tom? Not really. No. Occasionally no. a bit of FIFA. And that's yeah. It. Same. Cool. Yeah. We're on the same page here. But <laughs> I mean, uh, no. Tell me. Interesting. We said about open world. I mean, uh, do you? You and Dom think that um, for most consumers at the moment, if you can put down as little, I say as little, as like 180 quid on a PS4, and if you've got a good internet connection, you, you kind of feel like, yeah, you've you've expanded your gaming horizons. What, who is this Project Scorpio for if it's going to be like 500 quid? Yeah, so like I said, we don't have a price yet, but probably based on what's in the box, we're looking at around 500 pounds. Um, who it's for is basically a combination of the kind of people who care so much about performance that they'll spend any amount of money to get the latest, best version. Um, it's also going to be a lot for people, say anyone doing uh, streaming their gameplay, uh, the Scorpio will let you stream 4K video. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. With HDR and other fancy graphical stuff going on. So if you're someone who makes their money streaming footage of them playing games, Scorpio will let you stream at the best quality. Um, but it's also, I think, one of the benefits is it improves performance, not just in the sense of up to resolutions, so, you know, making the most of your 4K TV, but games will run more smoothly. And one of the things I think we've seen in the last year or two is a lot of games where developers have basically outstripped the power of the consoles. Right. They've been too ambitious in the graphical stuff they're doing, and we're getting a lot of games that are running at 20 frames per second. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is to the point where the average person will start to notice frame rate dips. They'll notice that it's sluggish, that it just kind of stutters along at points. Okay. So one of the big benefits of this is that you will get much smoother performance on almost every game. It's almost kind of mirroring the way PC gaming went. Though. Yeah. So I know consoles are pretty much PC gaming boxes now anyway. <laughs> yeah. But the idea that you'll have to upgrade to be able to get the best experience on games. Exactly. And I think Microsoft, especially more and more, are going that way. They're, one of their big pushes over the last year has been basically to fuse their Xbox and PC gaming 
systems, the way they market it all, you know, if you buy a, a game from Microsoft on their online store, it's just called the Xbox Store, and you, whether mm. you buy it for PC or Xbox. So they're really pushing the ways that gaming on Windows 10 on a computer is like gaming on an Xbox, and the ways that gaming on an Xbox One is like gaming on a PC. Like, the Xbox One actually runs a version of Windows 10. How um, are Xbox One sales at the moment compared to PlayStation 4? Sluggish, yeah. uh, to be kind. Um, yeah, it's not been doing... Uh, tremendously well compared to the PS4 and I think this is a big push by Microsoft um, the PS4 Pro and combined with the PlayStation 4 VR coming out last year gave Sony another big boost to the market and a sense that they really dominated so this coming a year after the PS4 Pro I think it's then telling that the way Microsoft have pushed this is it blows the PS4 Pro out of the water if you run down every tech spec the CPU the GPU the RAM the hard drive everything is at least a little bit better than what's in the PlayStation 4 Pro. Do you think there'll be any massive PR gaffes like there were with the Xbox One when it was first announced? Because it was completely slated by people saying, you know, it's going to require Connect to listen to you at all times. <laughs> yeah. They filed a patent to uh, listen on you and like stop you from watching certain content or yeah. all, all this crazy stuff. Like I feel like because it's Microsoft, they're bound to do something stupid. I don't think there'll be anything too bad. I think they're very... They've learned. They've learned. Uh, certainly, they've definitely learned about Connect. Um, that's just they've almost entirely given up on that now. I think that the biggest risk of this backfiring will be the price point mm. because the PS4 Pro launched at three hundred and fifty dollars. I think that's pretty good. Um, yeah, and everyone's looking at the stuff in this box and thinking that's five hundred dollars, five hundred pounds minimum. No one can really see how they could sell it for less than that and still make money on them. But that's a lot of money, and even for the performance boost over the PS4 Pro, that's a hundred and fifty pound extra. It's a, it's a big step up. So it could just be that they've aimed too high and people are just going to turn around and say, yeah, that's amazing, but I'm never going to spend £500 on a games console. Mm-hmm. Especially one that plays the exact same games as the one I've already got, just a bit shinier. I'll buy it in two years when it's cheaper. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so this is a piece of hardware, gaming hardware, that people are getting very excited about before it's even got a real name or they know what it looks like or how much it costs or yes. any of the games. Yes. So, I mean, a bit like the Nintendo Switch, but not quite. There was only really, let's be honest, one decent game on launch. Mm-hmm. Is there any whispers of what the like the uh, the flagship game for this console will be? We're expecting the big launch thing will probably be a new Forza game, which is Microsoft's sort of first-party rating series, which are oh, famous right. for being graphically astonishing every single time. Okay. So that's partly why everyone's expecting them to lead with that. But again, it's worth noting, every game that comes out for the Scorpio will also run on the normal Xbox One. Oh. And it comes out with access to the full existing Xbox One library. So it doesn't have that same kind of release date game pressure a normal console get my head around it. <laughs> it seems sort of like... It's weird. Yeah, it is weird, it's, it? Yeah, it's this weird new sort of halfway step between console generations now. Whether, sorry, go on. If, if, you're, if you're the kind of person who'd be investing more money in a new console to get the best performance and it's basically the same titles as you, have, as you have on PC anyway why would you not just be a PC gamer surely it makes more sense I know it's maybe a bit more expensive but yeah no that's it. one of the reasons I don't own an Xbox One because I look and I think there's no games on it I can't get either on my PS4 or on my PC so why should I um, I mean there are obviously benefits if you don't have a console already it's a nice you know if you've got a nice living room set up with a TV it's more comfortable to sit around on a sofa with a controller mm. than it is hunched over a keyboard but you increasingly get things like the Steam boxes which are gaming PCs designed to be plugged in in your living room next to a TV um, again just eroding that console PC divide uh, the big benefits to it is I guess it's just a kind of seamless system it's all very smooth it's very easy there's 
one OS to navigate, design with a controller in mind, quick access to a digital store to buy your games, and everything just works, yeah, hopefully. Didn't Microsoft try and make, like PlayStation are kind of doing as well, make a push for the console to be like the main media hub in your house? Yeah. Now it's, it's meant to be meant to stream everything from it or download stuff. I mean, is that yeah. actually going to happen? Well, it does to an extent in that, you know, all the big consoles now, other than the Switch, you know, have Netflix and Amazon Prime Video apps and iPlayer and all sorts of other things like that. So, you know, when my PS4 is plugged into my TV at home, that's the default way I do stream content. And, you know, they work as Blu-ray players as well. So there is a kind of, other than giving you access to actual, you know, like sort of cable TV kind of thing, they are pretty much the one box you need plugged into your TV in theory. But you could get a cheaper one that does the same thing. Uh, yeah, but just kind of like, have the same graphical power. Yeah, it's kind of like phones, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, that's why same. I'll fall back on. I know more about that. You could get like a fifty-pound Android phone that'll run the same services as an eight hundred-pound exactly. one. It'll just it won't do it very well. Yeah, it won't look as nice. Yeah. It won't be quite as smooth. The screen won't be quite as nice in case, case for phone. You know, yeah. you can get all the same functionality on a much cheaper one. But if you're the kind of person willing to spend an extra few hundred quid to have the best and to have the smoothest performance, some people will. Tempted boys. No. <laughs> I love the name, though. You like the name? Yeah. That's yeah, you cool. like the name? Okay. Really well, in that cool. case, I'll ask you first then, Tom. Scorpio or Scorpio? Scorpio. Scorpio. Dom? Scorpio. Tamlin? Scorpio. Good lad. Right. Okay, cool. Uh, that was games. Next up is uh, the gentle topic of cyber warfare. <laughs> My knowledge of the intricacies of cyber warfare is basically the Matthew Broderick film War Games, and also the general 21st century understanding that people can use computers to do bad things. Luckily, Tamlin McGee knows a, a bit more than me, and man, there is a lot to know. Tamlin, I'll try and start with <laughs> a simple question to a complex uh, topic here. Why is there no globally recognised policy on cyber warfare? Whew. <laughs> <laughs> um, or if that's not the best place to start, please correct me. Well, it's such a big topic, there's no real good place to start. Obviously, there's there's things that are internationally agreed on like the Geneva Convention uh, which sort of sets out the rules of play a little bit for warfare and that sort of came out of horrible devastating acts in the 20th century yes. uh, thing is cyber is way way murkier because first of all there's uh, F Secure researcher put it to me like this you can kind of generally see where like bullets are coming from yep. you can see tanks amassing on borders and so on and so forth we're starting to see the effects of cyber warfare in the physical world, but it's much harder to trace where it's coming from. So there's all these complications around it. Um, I think we we first saw cyber war really come to the mainstream outside of those sci-fi films with Stuxnet, which was discovered in 2010, was which that? was yeah. it, it was a uh, joint U.S.-Israeli scheme to uh, destroy Iran's nuclear centrifuges central to Iran's nuclear program. Now, we only know that the US and Israel did that because they basically admitted it. Um, and, if, and it was successful? It was successful, yeah. It completely shut down the scheme. Um, how was that viewed internationally? Was it sort of seen as, obviously, Iran was doing a bad thing, but well, was it a bit sneaky? <laughs> it was a bit sneaky, but, but I mean, that's where that's where it's so complicated. Like, yeah. There's so many geopolitics tied up in it. Um Obviously, from the US and Israel's point of view, they thought it was a bad thing, which is why they covertly created this software to do it. Yeah. Um, from Iran's point of view, they you know, they probably had perfectly good reasons for developing nuclear capabilities, or allegedly so, or so on. Yeah. <clears throat> but I've I've been trying to really understand like where the rules of play are, if there are any, and the answer is they're pretty much aren't. <laughs> right. <laughs> there because, was there yeah. was something in in 
2009 that was established called the Tallinn Manual, which was uh, a group of security researchers, predominantly from the West, I think some from the US as well, to, to set up some sort of rules of play about what counts as a cyber attack and what doesn't. It's a very long, dense book, but uh, as a researcher pointed out to me, the problem is getting people to agree to it in the first place. Right, yeah. You know? And like, yeah, who who has the authority to ask that question and who, I don't know, who do they ask it to? So a a researcher from Rand Corporation, which is a shooter, if I remember correctly, from the US Air Force, a uh, private sector an- analyst and think tank, mostly about US interests and the US military and everything to, to do with that, said that it's probably much more useful to kind of understand what the rules of play are by examining US behavior because it is the leading power in the world and it's the one most blatantly aggressive, basically. Yeah. Um, US behavior, it's kind of like you need to judge everything on a case-by-case basis. There have been some bilateral agreements struck, including between the US and China, whereby um, they agreed not to spy, spy on each other with cyber espionage for commercial purposes, but that only came about after the US threatened sanctions right <laughs> and bizarrely as well like the u.s made a big song, song and dance of the um alleged sony hack which it claimed north korea was behind about a film about north korea i can't remember what it's called the, uh, but, um, the interview, interview. Yeah. that was it yeah, yeah. yeah um they made a big song and dance about that and it was in the headlines for weeks and weeks and weeks uh but at the same time you know there's apparently compelling evidence that North Korea is launching attacks against a treaty ally of the states, which is South Korea all the time, yeah. and yet those things go unnoticed. So it's super, super, super murky. This is very murky. I mean, for context, you wrote an article, uh, which is on Tech World, um, which uh, starts with the question, could there be a Geneva Convention um, to a parallel mm-hmm. for cyber warfare? Um, the answer is, there should be, but it's well hard. Yeah, um, it would and- be nice, basically, but... Probably not. Because <laughs> one, one thing that drew my eye was you had a quote from a, a guy who used to be a US Marine, and he was saying right. how that they loved the Geneva Convention because obviously they were still doing questionable things in, an, in, a, in a war zone, but they knew where their rights l- lie and sort of internationally recognized. Love, you know more about it than I do. Mm-hmm. Um, so as well as this being a geopolitical thing where countries worried and they need to know the rules ar- around how to politically navigate cyber warfare hmm. how does that also then trickle down to affect because obviously it's war people people die hmm. so is this also partly to influence how soldiers feel about it and how, i mean if 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 there was a big just theoretically if there's a big cyber attack on if there was a big cyber attack that happened between nation states it would probably be either intelligence gathering or on critical infrastructure it wouldn't necessarily be weapon based is that what no, you're saying yeah, yeah. Um, so it'd probably be targeted against like military targets like the centrifuge in Iran yep. or um, civilian populations like shutting down a power grid or uh, some other kind of crucial supply line. Um, basically, the consensus is at the moment, if you could achieve something through cyber weapons that you could also do with a kinetic attack that would cause a similar kind of damage, it'll probably be treated as a kinetic attack like with traditional weapons. But again, there's there's no like set definition out there about what a cyber attack is. Even the Talon manual, which went into Stuxnet, failed to define whether it was a legal or an illegal cyber attack. So it's all confusing. Yeah. <laughs> um, the, the guy that you mentioned was from a vendor called Carbon Black, I think, um, Rick McElroy. And he said that, you know, 
there needs to be some clarity about def- defining what a cyber attack is before we can yeah. go forward. Uh, but also, going back to where the Geneva Con- Convention came from in the first place, he believes that it would take some kind of disaster as a result of cyber warfare mm-hmm. before anyone actually got around the table and thought, okay, this is actually really dangerous, we need to do something about it. But that's, that's kind of how it happens, unfortunately, isn't it? Yeah. It took, yeah, I don't know, the one that came to my head was airport security after 9-11. Mm-hmm. Things like that, which you could maybe look back on and think, oh, this, this probably isn't very good. Maybe we should do that. But it takes a catastrophic event to to will people into action. Mm-hmm. Which which international bodies have the power and responsibility to sit people down, though, and do it? Is it, is it individual governments or is it like the UN? So at the moment, at the moment, it looks like if there are any agreements that be struck, it'd be bilateral, so between countries. Uh, but I think the UN would probably be a good model place to at least try and set out some definitions of how it affects people. There have been some re- resolutions put through the UN to kind of look at it a little bit, but nothing um, definitive so far. I think another one of the problems is just attribution. Again, uh, that same F-Secure guy said that there have been instances where they were sure that Russia had conducted a cyber attack. All the evidence that they had suggested it was Russia, but still you can't be 100% sure. You can't even be 80% sure because it's so easy to spoof an attack. If you're really smart, to go, if, you're really, if you're going about it in a really smart way, you might write your code in Cyrillic and put it on a Russian search engine or whatever. Right. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Like you say, you can't see where the attack's coming from. Exactly. There's yeah. no trace. Yeah. He, he cited one, one, one example where um, they found a... They found a code that they'd never seen before and they put it into google because even cyber attackers are lazy and like to copy and paste code right and there were no instances in google whatsoever so they tried the chinese search engine baidu and found a few instances of this code line Ah, which would suggest that it was chinese hackers but again he said you know if you're really smart you'd write the code in chinese and put it in baidu to make everyone think that was china doing it oh man (laughs) (laughs) so fun stuff (laughs) what do you think dom (laughs) <laughs> I don't know. Should I talk about video games? No, so it. I mean, yeah, it's um, it's a horrible idea that it's going to have to get worse before it gets better. Right, that nothing's really going to change until we have some sort of horrible, crippling, disastrous cyber attack where someone manages to kill God knows how many people by taking down some bit of vital infrastructure, and we're just sort of almost just sitting around waiting for that to happen, so that then all the world governments get over their asses and do something. There has been a bit of a step change in how governments are treating cyber now. Um, for example, in Europe, there's only one major power that doesn't currently have cyber offensive offensive capabilities, and that's Finland. Right. Uh, and it's working to change that. Okay. So everyone now is developing like capabilities to strike back, as it were, um, including the UK. Like The Chancellor, Philip Hammond, made a big song and dance about it recently, um, saying saying that they're spending billions on, you know, protecting critical infrastructure, but also developing weapons, basically. Mm. So we're in a bit of a cyber arms race at the moment, then. I mean, I guess so. (laughs) I guess so, but it's hard to know, because it's all so behind closed doors. I mean, I guess we saw a bit of a glimpse of it through the Vault 7 leaks, through WikiLeaks, which sort of detailed um, the capabilities of the CIA and what they can do. But in terms of the wider capabilities, there's no real way of knowing. So I don't have an answer for you, really. <laughs> Do you know much about this, Tom? Or are you sort of soaking it all up like we are? Yeah, well, I've read Tamlin's article. It's really interesting. I was curious, um, who do you think is most keen on there being some sort of Geneva Convention for Cyber Warfare? Is there an impetus from anywhere in particular? Or? 
I mean, there was the Budapest Convention, which kind of set out laws, or, or at least um, agreements between countries about how their individual police forces would deal with cybercrime. But again, these were mostly Western nations, whereby they'd probably be cooperating anyway. Um, so you've got the US um, and then much of Europe. Yeah. But those countries generally, the the, perce- the perception is they'll probably be attacked from sources in China, Russia, sure. and Iran anyway. So how useful that is in establishing a global norm is mm. up for debate. And so this is, is this a thing that's mainly perceived by governments to be between countries or is it, is it, does it extend to the wider terror threat as well? There's been, I, I went to a briefing with BA, BAE Systems, the, the weapon building lads. <laughs> the Top weapon, lads. The weapon boys. <laughs> um, yeah, those creeps. Uh, <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> I, I, I went to I went to a briefing they held a while ago, and yeah. they said there's been no evidence of um, any like mass terror or even smaller terror events with cyber weapons so far. But it is a popular tool for criminal gangs that are often like multi-million dollar operations that yeah. operate in offices much like ours, where it's just kind of a day job, um, attacking organizations or retrieving information. And apparently, in the case of Russia. They kind of allow this to go on, and, and Secret Services agent will have a look and see what they've got later, you know. Um, but on the terror front, there's been no evidence of it so far. Well, that's a that's a good way to, to end. <laughs> uh, it'll only be the very rich multi-million dollar corporations who are going to do a war <laughs> using uh, cyber. And, and as I, as you can tell, listener, I don't really know what to say about it because it's quite confusing and slightly depressing. Um, and I actually felt wrong to make a joke here, not only because I couldn't really think of anything to rhyme with warfare, um, but I think for the first time on the pod, should we all just agree that it's very difficult, but policy is good in this instance? Unless anyone can think of a good pun that I could do. Cyber war or cyber poor. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Uh, I'm going to go with cyber poor. Yeah, cyber poor. Yeah, cyber poor. There you go. Poor cyber. <laughs> uh, thank you, Tamlin. Uh, yeah, check check out uh, TechPod. Seriously, though, guys, it's a it's a good uh, challenging read, but um, form your own opinions on it rather than my ramblings. Uh, no more funnies for you though today, listener. But thanks for listening. Subscribe. Tell your friends. Tell your enemies. And join us next week uh, for more tech audio interference. Uh, say goodbye, guys. Bye. <laughs> See you. Bye. UK Tech Weekly podcast. The biggest names in tennis are coming to Paris for the most anticipated Roland Garros in years. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. Experience three weeks of unparalleled tournament access as the world's top players in tennis face off against each other. Will the veteran champions continue their dominance or will a fresh face emerge to challenge their legacy on the clay courts? Daily live coverage of this epic showdown begins Monday, May 20th. Don't miss a matchup. Stream it now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. 
And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. 